Mind Hood and Evil. We're your host. I'm Mike. That's Chris. What's up? Slim. What are we getting into today? Man, you already know what it is, man. Before we even start, I just want to go ahead and let everybody know that you should go ahead and follow Beyond Hood and Evil. If you ain't following Beyond Hood and Evil on the IG page, on the Spotify page, on the Apple Podcast page, you're doing yourself a disservice. You know what I'm saying? Go ahead and hit us up on Instagram at Beyond Hood and Evil. Make sure you follow the page and share the page with a friend. Am I saying that we're going to blow up your feed? No. <laughs> Am I saying that we're going to be posting content that you need to know, though? Yes. If you're listening to us right now on Spotify, make sure you hit that follow button and rate us. If you can't rate us, that just means you ain't listened to enough episodes. So make sure you double up, play a few, and then come back and rate us. If you're listening on Apple, make sure you hit subscribe and rate us. And if you're listening on neither of those platforms, do the same damn thing. All right, let's get into it. You already know what it is, Beyond Hood and Evil. And today we have two very, very special guests. And they are on the side of change in the schools and educating the next generation of leaders, as well as those who are already in power. We have the great and wonderful Chicago Leadership Lab here today. And this is where the fanfare and stuff would come if we had a soundboard. But we don't have that. <laughs> we still, you know, we a grassroots podcast, like they used to say in the 2000s. We grassroots, you know what I'm saying? The organizing field. That's what you say when you develop that, you know. So we have the wonderful... Jackie Baker, and she is a educator, consultant, and a DEI specialist. Am I, did I say that correctly? I want to make sure I got all your titles. You know what I'm saying? That's great. That's great. Yes. Okay. And then we have the also wonderful Kate Miller, and she is an educator, correct? Yes, I am. That's right. So we're about to learn <laughs> some lessons today, and it might be a little bit uh, spicy today. I can feel it. It's a, it's a vibe I'm getting. From the screen, as I look at it, I'm assuming they've heard me talk at length about many things, and I'm ready because with all any and all things, I'm not. I'm ready for all the smoke. I can feel it. Like I don't know if you feel it, Mike, but I've been feeling. I've been feeling these subtle like jabs, like they want to get in there with me, like I'm play Clarissa Shields or something like that. So we're gonna see what's gonna happen today, man. That's about right. That's all right. That's what I'm yeah. saying. See, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it, bro. I knew it. I'm a, na- I'm a naturally spicy person. So. Yeah, I'm a little spicy, but I'm also right now, I thought that you all used the same intro. And so I'm just amazed that you have said it. And it sounds exactly the same as the other one. So that was Practice. what my look was about. Hey, listen, man, I'm a professional. I used to I used to rap in my dorm room in a sock and a microphone. I got all the tones. I was like, what is this sorcery? You sound exactly the same. Yeah, man. So don't don't worry about it. I did see Caitlin say, uh, no, that's not the title. I think the title might be Ed Consultant and DEI Strategist. And and I yeah, could already see Jackie, Jackie's like, oh, it's not, it's fine. Jackie's like, it's fine. Caitlin's like, no, <laughs> get it right. <laughs> Listen. That's listen. exactly that's exactly how our relationship is. <laughs> you, know, you nailed it on the head. <laughs> it's fine. And she's like, it's okay. I'm like, no, that's not what you said though. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. But, but it hey, is okay. I, I like me starting off on a, my best foot floor. You know, it's nothing like of making course. a dinner. You can only make your first impression twice. So you know, this is an audio podcast. That's what they say. Yeah, but I'm I'm gonna go ahead and just keep it moving. I messed up. I apologize. I, I messed up your intro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you edit it so we could do it all over again and nobody would even know this ever happened. So. This all standing here. I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to show my ills on my report card, so I'm going to leave it just like that. <laughs> so if you don't get into it, go ahead, Mike, man. Kick it off for us, man. Absolutely. So, Jackie, Kaylin, I appreciate you for joining us. This has been a long time coming. So, 
I do appreciate you making time out of your busy nights to come and rap with Chris and I, for sure. So welcome to Beyond Hood and Evil. Thank you. Absolutely. So what we want to do is just uh, for our listeners, I just want to give you really quick space and time because, you know, Chris got the intros mostly right. But I do want to give you a moment. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up too much, Chris. I want to give you some time to be able to introduce yourself to folks and let them know who you are before we get into some really spicy stuff around education, around equity, around leadership in Chicago and some entrepreneurship, too, because I believe that Chicago Leadership Lab is yours. So, yes, uh, yes. However you want to start, Caitlin, Jacqueline, you take the floor and make a quick intro. I actually a lot of times start with the fact that I'm a mom because that has been a really central part of my identity. And where I have grown the most in terms of who I am is having to make the decisions about who I need to be for my family, which is not always how I approach things. So first and foremost, I am a mom. I'm also a wife and I'm an educator and as Caitlin said, a storyteller. So that's something that was true about my grandmother. And I honored her for that. And um, it's been a privilege to actually find out that that is part of who I am too. Um, and the way I tell people's stories is I try to listen um, and I try to help them to tell their own story. And and then when they're not in those spaces, um, I try to use what I have heard them say and and really voice that for the other people in the room when, when the people can't be there themselves. So yeah, I started out, I knew I was going to be a doctor. Uh, and then I got to school and I fell in love with Africana studies and Latinx studies. And I was like, there'll always be people who want to be doctors, but not a lot of people were like, let me go back to Chicago and teach. Um, and so, yeah, I came back here and taught for a few years, but I knew early on that I wanted to go into consultant, uh, consulting. And that's why, um, that's why I decided to do like a Teach for America route because I could learn about the educational landscape of the city. And also I had a passion. I had fell in love with systems thinking and understanding um, hegemonic structures and, and oppression and all of that. And I was like, I need to write curriculum. But before I write curriculum and tell other people how to write curriculum, I need to teach. Um, so that's been part of my journey is teaching and learning and um, coaching teachers and becoming an administrator and then eventually starting my own consulting company um, with m one of my best friends in the world, Caitlin. So, hey. uh, yeah, that's a bit about me. I appreciate that, Jackie. Caitlin, you could just take it right on from there. I told you she's a she's a storyteller. She's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I'm this and this. Um, so I am I, I am an educator. Jackie always says when I say that I'm underselling myself, but I don't think I, I truly am. I, mm -hmm. When it comes to me and my identity, um, I am a teacher through and through and through. I have been this is about to go my 12th year into education. Let's so I've been, I've been teaching for quite some time. Um, it's, you know, I feel like it's my purpose in life and education is my purpose in life. I didn't always want to be a teacher. Actually, um, when I was a teenager, my mom was very adamant about, you're going to be a teacher when you grow up. I was like, mm -mm, no, I'm not going to be a teacher. I don't want to deal with them kids. Like, that's not for me. And I went to college and I love history. History's always been my favorite subject. And I took an intro to Latino studies class. And in this class, I learned all of these things uh, that you don't learn in high school or ever. And unless you take a specific class like this 
And it made me want to teach and write curriculum and change the path through the that way. So Jackie and I, our stories to education are very different, but our end goal is very similar. So, you know, our end goal is like, we want to write curriculum and we want to change systems. And we're really passionate about, you know, true teaching, true history. Um, And then just from that and just growing as being a teacher, Jackie actually was uh, my instructional coach, uh, like what, five, six years ago, um, when I first taught a curriculum that we co-created called African-American Latinx Studies. So I still currently teach um, a course of this class at the school we teach on the South side of Chicago. Let's go. And, and we have created several multiple curriculums since then for students and adults. And then we got into kind of like, you know, my soul sister kind of, Yes. we just yes. met together and it was like that person where like the same person as you, but the very opposite is like, this is the person I needed to get me from here yeah. to there. Mm. And to really help me grow my brain and to be this person that I wanted to be. So, you know, I'm very grateful. Please don't cry, Jackie. I'm very grateful for you. (laughs) But but she's really helped me. She's really helped me so much with um, just growing, not just as an educator, as a person, but the fact of how we work together and we brainstorm and we have these, uh, all these ideas. That's kind of how Chicago Leadership Lab was born because we had all these wants and needs of an understanding about um, race and how it operates and socialization processes in the country. And I think that when Jackie and I met, it just kind of exploded. And Thank now you. here we are doing this podcast. Look at you telling a story, Caitlin. And you said I was the storyteller. You are though. So I love this right off the back and, I, and I'm going to take it here really quickly, Chris. Last week we dropped the episode or, or recently we dropped the episode uh, that was Women Hate Women. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> what I'm seeing on this mic right now is that that is not the case. <laughs> that that is not the case. I'm seeing a lot of love here and I'm seeing a lot yeah. of support here between mm-hmm. two people who were complete strangers and they met each other on yeah. a true professional side and were able to see themselves as essentially kindred spirits is what I'm hearing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, being able to encourage and empower and uplift each other and then to be able to start a business together. Yeah. If that's mm-hmm. not like a woman showing a love to another woman in that way, like, I don't know what is. So, Chris, I think that might be a little bit of a counter to the yeah, episode that we dropped. Yeah. I want to yeah. I want to go on record saying that actually I said not all women. I didn't, I didn't say that. Not just want to point that out. I said not all women. We have two very industrious individuals on this podcast today. One said they wanted to be a doctor. The other one rejected the idea of being an educator to only become the thing she rejected. So mm-hmm. I want to point that out. <laughs> And they met in a way that was almost even very serendipitous, like yes. teacher, student. And then it became a cyclical, te- like they would began to teach each other, I'm assuming. And from there, the, a, a friendship blossomed from that relationship. So to even infer that, I would say that these two, <laughs> say that. it's incorrect, sir. Super incorrect. I just want folks to know that this is Chris coming correct. Right. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Jackie, for You're doing welcome. this for the people. So let's jump right in. So we talk about Chicago. We talk about equity. We talk about education. We talk about many things right here. There's a lot of different threads here that all kind of tie as we go. I I do want to start with a very big question because I think it could take us in many different ways. When you talk about drafting curriculum. Mm -hmm. Hold on, Mike. You jumping a gun. You're jumping a gun. Why Chicago? 
You both are in it's, Chicago. Like let's start at the beginning. You said starting drafting curriculum. That's, that's that's down the line. That's a later question. Let's talk about origin, bro. It's a subject, verb, predicate. So we let's get to the subject. The subject is Chicago. Why Chicago? Then we can get to the verb, the actions, and then we get into the predicate, how we finish it. So let's let's do that. Let's, why Chicago? Yeah, to, to go off what Caitlin said, like Chicago is home. And I know this is a contentious topic because technically neither Caitlin nor I are actually from the city of Chicago. I but I will say, I, I, I will it. say. I called it. I was, I I was born. I was born in Chicago. I, I believe I was too. Down the street from Soldier Field. Yeah, so. I think the hospital I was in was in Chicago. I also will say I grew up at one point in Riverdale and Riverdale had a 606 area code <laughs> while I was living there. And now does not, but I just need to, I need people to understand. Um, but anyway, so Chicago is home and, um, and I, I, so there's a, one of my favorite books is the house on mango street. Uh, mm-hmm. I've read that book five million times. And in the book, I believe is the last, like vignette, but it leaves, it ends with basically like I'm coming back for the ones who cannot out. And I love that line because it's like, when I read it, I was like, does Sandra Cisneros mean the ones who could not get out, but it's, it's deeper than that. Get out and the ones who cannot out, it's a lie. It doesn't just mean physically, it's mental, it's emotional, it's who didn't have the resources, who did, but their mom got sick and they had to come back and their plans changing, like all these things. And so I have always felt that way. Like I, I knew growing up that I had access to things that other people did not. Um, and then we had a financial shift too, where um, at one point, like my mom and dad, my mom and my stepdad, because my biological dad is, uh, he struggles with a lot of things and he was not involved um, mm-hmm. in my life. But so my stepdad and my mom at one point, you know, income was great, over 250K a year. And then my mom got sick and my stepdad got divorced. And then we were living off 15,000 a year. Um, and so, but what had kept me grounded is I was also like, I took part in different scholarship programs. Like I was in Link Unlimited. And so I had mentors that paid for my way through high school. Um, but like knowing that I could have to, had to go to the public school that I, you know, I, I, the other communities I'm from are like Dalton and Calumet City and mm-hmm. knowing what the graduation rates were there and knowing that I still had access to go to private school. I knew that part of my purpose was to grab everything that I could because I was great in school. I, I know that it just came naturally to me. Grab everything I could so that I can bring and take advantage of every single opportunity. I went to Williams College. It was free. I, you know, like all these things, take that back with you and not for me to just like distribute because I'm not the answer, but for me to help educate. And that's when I began to learn. I've always been a teacher. I've always been an educator. My purpose has always been to help other people learn. I've always been able to see things in a different way than other people have been able to see it. That's a gift. Um, So it was natural to come back home to Chicago um, and to pour back into a community that has poured immensely into me. I've had countless mentors. I literally cannot count all the people that poured into me. Like when I say I should have been dead, I should have been dead. Um, and I'm not. So this is my way to help um, encourage other people and to start with my locus of control, which is my home. Mm. 
my reason is not as poetic. Everybody say, yeah, you got to follow that. Sure, yeah, you get on right, stage. See, you, see, you, see what, you see what I'm saying when I'm telling you she's a storyteller? So she says something like that, super poetic. And then she's like, well, why are you from Chicago? I live here. Like, this is where I am. No, I'm kidding. Pro tip, you got to learn to go first. You got somebody from you coming out there like that after you got to go first. I told you, she's a storyteller. I'm just like, I guess I can give some type of answer like with that. But no, Chicago is my home. Like I grew up 20 minutes outside of downtown Chicago. So it's not like, um, I was ever kind of super distanced from the actual city. Chicago is, is to me, just a magical place. Like, honestly, like, I feel like every time I'm in the city, like, I do feel some kind of way. Like, it, it's just a, a beautiful city, no matter what the news says or what's going on in the media that they say about this city. There's so much, there's so many great people in this city. And I'm particularly thinking about our students and the things that the media says about our students and our students are some of the most brilliant, genius, beautiful, like mm -hmm. critical thinking can change yes. the world. Educate, like can go out and educate them, other people. And um, I think that it's just a miss when people always say, well, why Chicago? Oh my God, you hear what they said about Chicago and the crime rate and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, you don't know if you're not there. You know, like you just, you just don't yeah. know. Um, so that's like one of, one of the reasons it's, it's always, it's home for me, but also as an educator, I think it's super important as a teacher to feel comfortable in your classroom and be able to be your authentic self. And because this is my home, this is where I can be my authentic self. My kids mm. that sit in front of me, don't look at me and see somebody else. I am myself and I can bring who I am every day because this is my home just as much as it's theirs. I yeah. love that. And so, Chris, there's two things I want to say. Chicago is a commuter city. Folks are traveling in and out of Chicago to live Thank in the you. Burbs. Thank you, Michael. Yes, <laughs> it is. When I first when I first moved to Chicago, I was asking folks, you know, where we should move. And I said, I really want to move to the South Side. And I was looking at Brownsville because mm -hmm. I have family on in Bronzeville and I just had so many people tell me to move out to the suburbs that's where yeah. most people recommend it because they said you get everything you need you have yeah. everything you want and Chicago is still very much so accessible yeah. Yeah. and so mm -hmm. you know we ended up moving to Bronzeville to be in close proximity to family you also can't be being close to the lake but that's mm -hmm. part one I right. would say part two I would say is um, I'm gonna need by the end of this conversation for the two of you to have helped convince me to have Chris come to Chicago. Oh, oh my goodness. Just come, come visit. On, Chris. Yes. Just come on. Just come on down. Just come visit. You can stay downtown. You know, yeah. you'll be all right. You'll be fine. Yeah. Don't do that. First of all, I ain't no sucker. <laughs> the second, like, what are we talking about? First, I ain't no sucker. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can stay downtown. You'll be all right. What are you trying to say? But it's a second thing. Like, I've been to Chicago before. Like, it was okay. How long ago? Like, how long ago was it? How old were you? That's a right. real question. Well, what did you eat while you were here? Right. <laughs> so many questions. I, I had Giordano's. Is that oh, okay? No, uh, no, garbage, garbage. Okay, it's not terrible. No. Giordano's is not terrible, but if you're a tourist, that's not where you go. No, right? yeah, they're better. They're better where, options. Where should I have gone? What's that P well, one? I can't say it. It's it's called Pequod's. It's a, it's yes. a piece of place, but it is the. Have you been there, Mike? Have you been to Pequod's? I have not, but this is what I've been told. Put yes, it. yes it is that good. is the best like deep dish pizza in they Chicago. Have a really good crust. In it's like a, they got like this like caramelized cheese crust on yeah. it. It is definitely might put it on your list. Go this weekend. So okay. I got a question for both of y'all. This is my measuring stick. Have you been to Philly? Y'all been to Philly? Unfortunately, no. Okay, no. so I can't. Y'all been to DC? Yes, no. plenty of times. I've been to DC a lot of times. Where do you get your mumble sauce from? I don't know anything that you're talking about. That's how y'all just came at me. That's why y'all just came at me. 
<laughs> I, I something so specifically you have to be a native to know as a tourist. I wouldn't know that. So but I'm, I'm not so, opposed to visiting DC or Philly. You don't, have don't made mediate. you have no, made decisions about visiting Chicago or not visiting Chicago when yes. there are many details that you need to still explore. Uh, okay. uh, man, listen, man, I'm not here to be. <laughs> Don't talk to me in that motherly tone. Like, just making me feel guilty. Like, hey, golly, I just, first of all, I just met you. Second, like, what are we doing? Like, I'm trying to that's, figure out. That's what, what she does. That's what she does. <laughs> this is a jump. Y'all jumping me in. Y'all trying to make me drink. Chris didn't Kool-Aid. know. Chris didn't know. Hey, like, what's happening, man? Like, first of all, like, what? Let's I, reset. Let's yeah, reset. There we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> the real. So, we talked about why Chicago, right? And, and Caitlin, you alluded to this around why, you know, youth, students, right? Mm -hmm. You said you work with students. You also work with leaders, the adults, right? Whether it's the teachers or whether it's other people who lead nonprofit organizations. So like, like how is it working with youth and then how is it working with adults? And like, what's the challenges with working with those two groups and like, what makes you excited about working with those two groups? So when you say adults, are you meaning like the teachers that I coach, like those people are break, break it, break, break or down. Or are you the saying like you work the with adults within like the organizations that we work with? Because to me, it's two very different. I feel like um, types of we'll break down both. service. Um, so I forgot your overall question, but I think I'm going to answer it. So, like with, I would mm-hmm. say with teachers, specifically with the teachers that we work with, um, I would say it's very similar that they feel that it's different when you work with a group of adults that are also passionate about what you are doing and also believe in your vision and your mission Mm -hmm. and understand your values and treat you like a human being. So Mm -hmm. when I'm working with teachers, it's much different than it is, I would say, with organizations because also with organizations, they only see like a glimpse of you. They only see, Mm -hmm. you know, just like a little thing. Whereas other people see me, you know, not only am I uh, talking the talk, but I'm walking the walk as well. Like I'm doing Mm -hmm. what I say. So I would say with, with adult teachers, it's much different than with organizations because of that reason and the relationships that you build. Even though Jackie and I, when we work with organizations, work really hard to get people to feel comfortable and feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. and um, all of those things, it's not the same as you are working daily, every single day, grinding into one of the hardest jobs that I think is out there. Um, it, it's just a different experience. And it's, I, I don't want to say it's easier because I think the work is harder um, as far as like the mental capacity and the emotional capacity that being, that being yeah. a teacher and being an administrator at a school have is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's what I'm hearing from this is, you know, at least with the teachers, you have a bit of sweat equity, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they see you do the work so they know what you're able to put into it. And so they know when you're sharing this with them, where it's coming from, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's able to validate all the insights and information and all the push that you're going to put upon them to be able to get to where they want to go. So you have a bit of that sec- uh, sweat equity to do that. And you may not always have that when you're working with the leadership within organizations, mm-hmm. right, that are out of school. These I'm assuming nonprofits, or do you work with other types of groups outside of nonprofits? Primarily nonprofits, yeah. Okay. So these leaders within the nonprofits, you know, you you enjoy working with them too, but it may take a little bit to actually get them to be able to take that leap of faith and trust the two of you to be able to help move the needle within their own organizations. Yeah, I think with like, I'm sorry, Jack, who are you going to go? I was just going to say with, go ahead, go ahead. I'll come back. Yeah. So with teachers, I think a lot of it is in order to, I believe, be an effective teacher, you have to like be grounded in your identity and who you are as a person. And I think that's part of the work that Jackie and I have done as instructional coaches is understanding our mindsets and our behaviors and our identities and how that impacts students in our classroom. And I think because 
those individuals are so invested in their classroom and wanting to be a good teacher that it's easy to, it's easier to like have those conversations and get um, them to understand those mindsets. Whereas if you're working for not, or if you're worth a nonprofit, you might not even like want this training, necessarily care about this training. You might just be in a, a workshop or something because somebody told you to, and you might not understand your your why like why am I doing this how is this going to benefit me whereas in teachers I believe they do understand that why and are grounded in it and how it benefits them as well yeah the other thing I was going to say and something that Caitlin and I talk a lot about and we do workshops on this is when it comes to the differences between like kids and adults there are actually so many similarities in how they learn and so that's where like even research based just cognitively a lot of the things that originally scholars have said like oh there are so many differences and adults really need to know the why before they can do this and adults really need to be able to connect this to you know personal matters nope kids do too and and really Mm -hmm. most people require the same things to be invested and engaged. They have to, at some point, feel successful and safe and supported in some in whatever it is that you're talking about. And the other thing is it has to feel relevant, relevant to their personal, academic, or professional interests and goals. And if any of those like two buckets are missing, then engagement wanes. And so we think about that a lot, whether we're working with kids or whether we're working with adults who work with kids or whether we're working with adults who only work with adults, it actually is the same. Um, and that helps us to reflect on the type of workshops that we do and uh, you know how we measure engagement or the different activities we put in there to make sure that we build in different reflection opportunities, have them connect to things that they want. We talk to people about their goals first. We talk to them about their values. These are all things we do intentionally to create a space of vulnerability and literally help them open their mind to receive new information. But it seems to be a bit of human centered design in the curriculum you all create. Um, Mm -hmm. And that would you, Caitlin, you didn't speak much about the kids. Would you agree with Jackie about the kids piece? About the a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So in that, would you say that uh, there's a rigidity when you all are teaching adults and other people in education and more malleability in students? Because I know when I did my mentoring and teaching, that's what I always run into. People be so set in their ways when they're older that the kids usually have a bit more room to explore and grow and learn new techniques with. Uh, Yes and no. Uh, I I can't like definitively say that. I think that it's kind of what Jackie said. In order for the the brain to want to learn, the material has to feel relevant to them and and Mm. connect to their personal goals, right? And then they also need to feel safe and successful. So as a teacher, it, you know, that's what you do at the beginning of school year. You create this environment for your students to feel safe and successful and feel like it's okay to fail in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're creating that, it's a different kind of dynamic because they're looking at you like you're the leader of the classroom. Right. You're the te- you have more experience. So there's kind of that. But I wouldn't say it makes that they're more malleable because I would, I've had many, I specifically talking about the class that I teach. I've had many, Jackie's laughing. I've had many conversations (laughs) with students um, who believe and think certain things. And it's, you know, a lot of times I'm like, you're a teenager, like you, there's certain experiences that you need to have. So I, I would, as for adults, 
the whole piece about, you know, we can do something to help make them feel successful, but the relevance piece is a little bit different because kids have to go to school. They have to sit in your mm-hmm. classroom. And if you're going to sit here, like you're going to be in my classroom anyway. So we might as well make the uh, best time that we can. Right. Whereas adults, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that same yeah. feeling or um, they, they don't look at you the same way as a student would look at as a teacher, especially when you, when I, we work with high schoolers. So it's a, it's a whole different type of dynamic and okay. how they look at you as individuals. Okay. Yeah. And, and while we're, this leads to the topic of, of race and identity, because that also really matters. Like you're, so we talk about, um, Kayla and I talk about, there's a book called culturally responsive teaching in the brain, um, by Zaretta Hammond. And I believe it's chapter five It's one of my favorite chapters in the book. She got the whole but book she, memorized. It's funny because I didn't like the book at first chapter one. I was like, I already read this. I know all this stuff. And then as I started, I was like, nope, nope, there's some some jewels here. But yeah, so chapter five, Theretta Hammond talks about these trust generators and these trust generators are are universal. So no matter the culture, whether it's children, adults. Um, and, and so we talk about these and one of them is competence. And like that's what Caitlin is talking about too, like how children perceive competence. But when we, when it comes with adults, like adults have, and we see it in kids, like kids definitely have ideas about race and identity, but adults, adults have had more time to really Mm -hmm. lock in those biases. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And because they are also adults, they feel like, well, the way I feel, I am an adult. So I know these things versus kids. You can, you know, they know that they're kids and that they're learning things and they've heard, well, you're just a kid. So that is something that's a bit different. And like being, uh, I, I would say Caitlin and I both look younger than what we are. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, <laughs> <laughs> the I like the pose. Yes. And so we have run into that. Um, yeah. But it's also really strategic in how Caitlin and I um, present ourselves in the workshops. We tell our stories there so people understand our experience. Caitlin and I are both in grad school pursuing our doctorates. So we make sure to tell that because for some people, they need that. Like we could care less mm-hmm. if like yeah. everybody knows that we're doctors, but there might be somebody in there who like, that is what unlocks it for them. And that's how we can get to where we need to get with them sooner. Um, and then certainly there's the factor of race. So we're intentional about like, even when we do larger workshops and we need to bring other other teammates in, it's like, okay, well, are there two people of color in this room versus one person of color and a white person versus a male, and, you know, someone who identifies as female or what? Just because, again, there you might have people who are like, how are you as a black woman going to tell me about white people and white identity? Well, that's all right. I don't have to. You take this away, Caitlin. And then, you know, we can also get much further in that conversation than I could. Similarly, if Caitlin was like, this is how black people feel. Someone might be like, Caitlin, sit down. Right. But yeah, (laughs) I think just to build on that, too, is that with kids, it's easier to plant the seed. Right. Um, I think that that's huge as, as when they're kids and they're learning these things for the first time, because if you start planting the seeds when they're young and they're starting to have these experiences into their adulthood, they're like able to make the connections. If we're talking about things with race, like, oh, why does my community look like this? Oh, because I learned about redlining and X, Y, Z. Right. And they're able to make that connection, whereas other people haven't heard of the thing mm-hmm. like red, I'm just using redlining as an example until they're 50 years old. Yep. And they're like, mm-hmm. no, people choose to live. Yeah, my whole life is That's a lie. Why we're you know, segregated. <laughs> so I, yeah, so it's, I think it's, 
it's a little bit different with kids because you do get to plant that seed. And I've had, you know, students that have graduated and texted me like, guess what happened? This happened. And I was able to connect to this thing in history that you have taught us. So I think that's really important to also name is that, you know, when we're able to plant those seeds in the kids and they're able to have the experiences, it puts them at an advantage. Hmm. So how does identity plan to you all's curriculum in a way? Like you all, you both have focused areas of Latin X and also I believe some sort of African-American or Africana studies. What drove you all there? Is that a personal thing? Is it a biological thing? What is it? Do you want to start, Caitlin? Uh, I, I sure. Also, I mean, <laughs> I, I like I, to hand exactly. off every time. Because <laughs> she, she's got a whole story. She's exactly. like, go ahead, tell, say what you got to say so I, I, so I can be all poetic here. Chris Tips, um, ready. Like, let's start first. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, for me, um, that my identity plays a huge role into what I do. And I would say that Jackie, that I identify as a white woman and I like, I, I, my upbringing also has to do with this. I did not go to a good school. Um, I went to like a, a school that's actually closed now for high school. So the experiences mm. that I had in high school were much different than others. And like I said, I loved history. I've always loved history. Um, so when I went to college and I took a hi- the history class and was like, everything you told was a lie. I was, you know, I was like, what the hell? Like, I was mad. And I was just like, mm. I love history. Why, would, why do people lie about history? Like, it didn't make sense to me why people mm. lied about history. And I'm somebody that um, operates out of, like, if something makes me angry, like, I got to, op- I operate out of that and it kind of fuels me. So I was just like... I'm going to dig more into this. And as I was digging more into like curriculum and understanding um, like systemic racism and understanding why our textbooks say this and understanding um, or institutional racism specifically in education, that's what really got me into um, learning about how race operates in our country. And that, and it's more like of a, I'm interested in these things and I enjoy having conversations about this because I like to learn about it. So not only am I teaching about it, I thoroughly enjoy learning and growing in this area and I truly believe as a white woman, part of my purpose is to educate other white people in this specific area. So that is something that I um, kind of walk in. And so in order for me to walk in it, I have to know as much as possible uh, because those are people, sometimes when you have these conversations with white people, they throw a lot back at you. So I have to have the evidence mm-hmm. ready to go for them. And to play, I had to play defense. Yes. To, or I had to fight mm-hmm. through the defense. And you're like, mm-hmm. now nah, I'm going to get to it. You know, I'm going to break down all these shields and protections and we're going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And we're going to connect some dots and I'm going to make you feel this. Yep. And then we can have real conversations. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. For for me, definitely identity played a big role. I I used to tell, when I would tell my story of how I like came to this topic, I would start at, at my school, Williams, and how I took, you know, an intro to African-American lit class, or actually it was called rewriting slavery. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment, but actually my story, I realized started way earlier than that because my mom and my stepdad used to make me watch these videos called eyes on the prize. And it was like, keep your eyes on the prize. Like I remember the intro song still, and it was on VHS. So this was a while ago and there were like 20 of them. So I would have to watch this like every Saturday before I was allowed to like watch any other TV. Um, and that really like had a big impact on me just seeing my history. Um, and as somebody who always pretty much went to predominantly white schools, I knew my parents knew that it was important for me to know that so that I would never get it twisted. Um, and so 
that also like fueled in me a bit of social activism. Like when I went to schools and we weren't doing anything but coloring like MLK worksheets and Malcolm X worksheets, you know, I in sixth grade, I would say like, hey, like we need to do something else. And I remember I had a nun. I'm going to call her name. She did anyway. Sister Mary Cecilia. <laughs> Um, say that yeah, she did super yeah. Chicago right there this in the day Chicago right there this in the day something y'all do all the time man I'm talking about y'all I grew up outside of Chicago I'm actually from Illinois I grew up in downtown this in the day first on old block bang bang 600 yes. like, what are you talking about sister Mary Cecilia like <laughs> yes so I remember like breaking my hand she 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 was dealing with some things internally because she said a few things were like just unacceptable but one of them was like one of my wow. first weeks there um, and I raised my hand. She didn't know my name. There's only a couple black kids anyway. And the class was small. It was like 20 people. But she's like, yes, you little black girl. So I remember like that situation. She had also once called my question stupid. Anyway, I remember also telling her, like, can we do something else besides color these worksheets? And I don't remember exactly what she said, but it led to me getting a petition signed. I was outside of the school and then my mom fueled these things in me. She's like, if you want change, you can do that. Here, take this. Here's a bag of those dumb, dumb like suckers and <laughs> ask people to sign this petition and pass out these suckers. And so, yeah, as I reflect on it, like she built that in me. And so she was preparing me for you know, what I do now. And so, yeah, by the time I went to Williams, you know, I was already like interested in the topic, but I had only known about a couple of black authors because we didn't learn it. We knew about like Zora Neale Hurston or Toni Morrison, which I loved and Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. But when I took rewriting slavery, there were hundreds, there were hundreds of black people who wrote books during enslavement mm -hmm. and that I had never heard about. I never heard about these people. There were free people like during enslavement that I had never heard about and I'm just like what the hell and at that moment I was like it should not take somebody to be 18 or 19 years old before they learn about this let alone like exposing systems and inequity and here's racial projects and how racist form let alone all that stuff it shouldn't take until you're 18 or 19 years old to learn that there is a there is a myriad of authors of color that have existed um and that is when I knew I wanted to go into teaching and that is when I knew I wanted to write curriculum um and so it just took me a little bit to be able to tell my mom and my dad I'm not going to be a doctor uh I'm going to be a teacher um in which they all say like you're too smart for to be a teacher uh yes <laughs> right um but again, like that misinformation about what it means to be an educator. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I knew that this was meant for me. I didn't know it would end up here, but I'm happy you did. I want to stay there for a second, just because um, doing some work that I did with consulting, there was this concept of um, trying to expose more of our youth, particularly high schoolers who are seniors, um, to careers in education. And there was this one particular notion that the one career that you could pursue in education or the one career that was put forth in front of you was teaching. Mm -hmm. And one of the things when I took on this project was to try to reframe the idea of what an educator is. So before I even get into my own bag, I want to kind of flip the question back to you. It's like, what is that idea of an educator to you? Be, for me personally, being an educator is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. And Drop I, the mic. That and, was it. <laughs> See, go, ahead. go ahead, Jackie. No, I'm kidding. I'm correct and short. There you go. Uh, but no, I think it, it it is an act of resistance because I I don't want to. I'm not going to get on a soapbox about this or uh, dive too deep or go down the rabbit hole. 
but it's very frustrating mm-hmm. how disrespected educators are in our country. Mm-hmm. It's it, uh, on a regular basis. You could put on any TV show and you can hear somebody say, oh, those who can't um, teach. And that's just like, it, it, educators are some of the most, the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. But I think also it's not just being a teacher in front of the classroom, right? I think actually at the end of the day, every single person is an educator. Somebody is te- you are teaching something mm-hmm. somewhere yes. to somebody Everybody has it in them. It's just, do you actually want to do that as a profession? Um, But I think that kids that want to go into education and not necessarily want to be a teacher, that is where this whole role of consulting play uh, takes them can go. But also like, I feel like if you want to go down the role of being an education consultant, you need to also understand how teaching works. And that that is a problem in our country is that the people that make the decisions for teachers have never been in a classroom. Yeah. So, so you know, so it's it's just hard when you are a teacher or you go to school for education and there's other things that you want to do. But I do think you need to you would have to put in the time to be a teacher. But if there's those other things that you want to do, like me, there was other things that I wanted to do. I wanted to go into like curriculum writing and move up. Um, and here I am. I still teach one class. <laughs> like, right. I'm mostly in administration now, but I still have my one class that I hold barely dearly to my heart. Because I love it so much and it helps me become better at everything else that I do. I'm not sure if that answers your question about other roles in education, but that that's just, I think everybody is an educator. Yeah, I absolutely, I would absolutely agree. In fact, like when I think about education, I oftentimes tell kids or, you know, I'll talk to other educators and just remind them of the importance of parents or guardians, because those are our kids first educators. Those are our kids first teachers. The one is teaching you how to walk, how to eat, how to breathe, how to come back after you've been crying and your nose is spotty. Like these are people teaching you the social emotional skills and, you know, teaching your letters and how to count and how to see the world. Um, so I agree with Caitlin, like every, everybody, anybody can be an educator. And for me, I see educators also as storytellers because we are picking the, the nature of curriculum writing, the nature of education and teaching is you pick what you believe is most important for this person to learn. Right. Ultimately, in an ideal place, you are also involving the people who are learning and selecting Mm -hmm. what they are learning. But regardless, whoever it is, is still selecting what they believe is most important. And there's a story, you put it in a sequence, an order, and you connect that. You're connecting dots and you help people also connect dots. But those dots, you still have an idea of like what you want them to get out of it. So there's a story that you already have in mind that you want to tell even if it's just a glimpse of that. Um, And I also think about the role of data. That's why I knew that I would be a good educator because I was always great at data and qualitative and quantitative, looking at a room, observing what people are doing and analyzing that. I knew that I could do it. I started doing it with adults when I would have to do that for um, class and my sociology class and things. But I was like, hey, this could translate into the classroom. If I'm walking around the classroom or I'm listening to what the kids are saying, I can analyze what they're feeling and thinking and help them also make sense of that too. Um, And so that, that level of taking data that, you know, for some people might just be these little anecdotal like tidbits or might be these numbers on a page. No, no, you give color to what those things mean. You are telling a story with that. And some people can look at the same data and tell a story of 
deficiency and other people can look at that same data and tell a story of promise and hope and brilliance. So Mm -hmm. you really have a lot of power as an educator. You are telling a particular story, whether you intend to or not. And I heard two things in both of you all's answers that we talk about constantly here on Beyond Hood and Evil, and that's experience and accountability. Both Mm -hmm. of you all took your experiences, ingested those, reflected, and then figured out a way to turn that experience into an actionable item to affect others, to make sure that your experience is not passed on to the next generation. I just want to give that a a, a round of applause. You know what I'm saying? Again, if we had a soundboard, I have all the sound effects going on right now, but we ain't got it. Cause again, we grassroots. I like y'all with y'all, you know, y'all LLC organization, you know what I'm saying? We just, you know what I'm saying? We grassroots. So I just want to applaud y'all and y'all efforts, man. But I guess we have a lot of the subject now, if you want to get into the verb or the sentence that we try and put together for the listeners. So what do the organizations or teachers or even students, if it's, if they mm-hmm. come to you for different things, that's fine. But like, what do most people come to you for and how do you package that service to deliver it? And what does the Chicago Leadership Lab have to offer its clients? Yeah, this is one of our favorite questions because the answer is the same no matter who it is. And it's about building reflective capacity uh, for other people and, mm-hmm. and a skill. When you help them build reflective capacity, they're also increasing in a skill of some sort. But our biggest strength, our biggest asset is that we help people think about who they are, what they do and why they do it. Whether it's kids, whether it's adults, whether it's teachers, whether it's a you know a CEO, whether it's a superintendent. Mm-hmm. And and we do that through giving them explicit tools uh, to help them reflect questions. Uh, we give them exercises, whether it's values-based leadership development or helping them understand the ladder of inference or uh, talking to them about internalized racism and how it manifests for white people and how it manifests for people of color. All of these things are really explicit thinking tools that help them understand their experiences and help them understand the experiences of others so that when they're making decisions or they're seeing somebody else's behavior, they can begin to think through, hmm, like, why is this happening? What might be the mindset or the mental model that somebody has that's leading to them acting that way? That takes a long time to develop, but ultimately that is what the goal is. I I echo all of that, um, especially, I think, when it comes to identity and what what somebody's identity is and not just somebody what they're born with identity, but what they have achieved in their yeah. life and how, you know, their their um, achieved identity is different from the identity they were born with and how their experiences actually shape their reality. So why reflection though? Why is that important in this process? If you can't be honest and reflect on yourself and your actions, and your behavior and your thoughts. I think that's really important too, is to be able to reflect on your thoughts that you don't say as well. Um, then you're not being honest with yourself and you're not going to grow as a person and, and effectively make change um, for what whatever it is that you are looking for. So if you're looking for, if an organization is um, something that Jack and I talk a lot about is internalized racial superiority, internalized racial, uh, internalized racial oppression. Um, so like understanding and being able to unpack how that affects us. If you're not be able, if you're not able to reflect in yourself, you're not going to be able to understand how either IRO or IRS operates in your life. Yeah. Like, and I think about specific things 
I'll get to IRO and IRS. So IRO is internalized racial oppression and how it manifests for how internalized racism manifests for people of color. And IRS is internalized racial superiority and how it manifests for white people, um, how internalized racism manifests for white people. But um, something else related to that is values. Caitlin and I talk a lot, really extensively (laughs) about um, how we've been socialized, how anyone and socialization is not a bad thing. We're all socialized. You might be socializing your family to give hugs and somebody else is socialized to not give hugs. You might be socialized to study for 12 hours a day. Somebody else is not. We're also socialized to think about what it means to be a woman or what it means to be black or what it means to be anything, you know? And so we talk a lot about that. Um, and related to that is values um, and what matters most to us uh, and and how our socialization has impacted us to be the way we are and have the values we have. And one thing I was actually doing a workshop today with a group of teachers and we were talking about values and I was sharing how one of my values is family. Um, one of my values used to be community, but I've had to since like merge community with family because what was happening is I was raised like many black people are raised. You got to work twice as hard to get half as much. Mm-hmm. And I was also raised and I don't, it wasn't necessarily my parents who said this, but I had internalized this message that it was my responsibility to carry the torch of the race. And that mm-hmm. if I had access to these things, like it was my duty to like, I had to reflect positively on the race. Cause I knew like many of us know if I did something wrong where there's another, mm-hmm. just black kid, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, what that meant is putting that with my knowledge of like in my passion for education, I came back and I felt an immense obligation to prioritize community and do everything I could for my community, especially to show that I wasn't a sellout. Like, look, I even though I have a car and I live in the suburbs, like I am still down. Right. <laughs> Which is all of that is stupid. But the other thing that it caused me to do was to deprioritize my family. Because if I now am responsible for 1,500 kids at this school, or I have a portfolio of 20 teachers, and that's thousands of kids across the city, mm-hmm. well, I have two kids, or at the one at one time, even one kid, like, and I have thousands of kids that are impacted by my decisions. And if my duty is to work twice as hard to get half as much, and I have to be the, the upholder of the torch for the race, then I choose community, right? And I actually was not choosing my family. Um, And so that is just an example of how ways that I was socialized impacted how I was choosing what I ultimately value. But through reflection, I was able to see like, why do I keep choosing community? What is this that makes me feel like I have to sacrifice this? I was at the point where like, I didn't even want to get my nails done. I didn't want to get this. I didn't want to go shopping because all of that showed that I was like privileging, like I was too privileged. I was benefiting too yeah. much from what I had. And, and and it also led to me doing things that physically made me sick because I was working too hard. Um, and so if you're not able to reflect on that, you can't disrupt it. And our biggest thing too is like you build reflective capacity, yes, to build skill but ultimately to disrupt systems. And if you can't sit back and understand what role you play in a system, because you play a role always, mm-hmm. it's never neutral. You either are contributing to the, the, and it usually is both. You contribute to the dysfunction of something and you contribute to the, the progress of something else. 
But there's power in recognizing that you can contribute to both. If you know that you're part of the dysfunction, great. I know what the problem is. I can either actively decide to do something different or I can say, actually, this is not in my capacity to help right now. So I'm just going to be okay with this part has to be a little bumpy, but I'll put my energy here. All of that is only achievable through reflection. And usually it takes another person to help you do it with um, so that you can recognize blind spots. Man, you said a lot. I always want to say two things, man. First, your body is, if your body is a temple, then your mind is an altar. And what do you do at an altar? You worship, but not only reflect, because that's how you connect to the bigger you. And it sounds like both of y'all did that. One. Mm -hmm. The second piece, though, we not to be a jerk, but we talked about this last week, but the women don't, <laughs> women hate women. I'll be doing so much, man. I got to be a juggler. I got to be the line tamer. I got to be the person that's cutting the grass. I got to cook the meals. I got to raise the kids. I got to be responsible for the entire race. And I'm not saying that's something that all black people don't go through. Mm. But black ladies, man, what's that yeah. respectability politics, as mm -hmm. much as people reject that, that's something that's internalized. And that's because, yes. like you said, black people, and people don't understand that, but a lot of people color, but specifically black people, yeah. it's like we're super communal people. So it's like, we don't see ourselves as the one, we see ourselves yeah. as the many. So that means yeah. that I represent everybody as yes. opposed to a lot of all the other cultures, they see themselves as a piece of mm -hmm. the many. So it's like, I'm not a part of the many, there's always just me and mine, yeah. and then there's others. So yeah. I think that's very important. And we might need to talk about that, not in this episode, but another episode, right. Mike. Like that's a real thing. It's hard to get real over time. that. You don't really yes. get over that until you like in your, 30s or whatever, like when you, yeah. especially when you're younger, you trying to be upwardly mobile. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> it's hard to get over that. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. So I, I do want to switch speeds just a little bit, but kind of stay in this area where we're talking about the work that you do on self and that how that allows you to didn't do the work outside of yourself, which is where I talk, I spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about how much work that I do which gives me the bass in my voice. Narcissism. <laughs> hey, you got to have a little, a little, little, little bit of it. You gotta, oh my gotta God, look. so narcissistic. He just talks about himself. Oh my God. <laughs> you got to talk about the work that I'm doing, which allows me to have a little bass in my voice when people ask me what they should do. I'm saying, hey, I'm only going to tell you what I have done. And so 2020 was an incredible year. Uh, for for many reasons, it was it was it was beautiful in many ways. It was destructive in in others, and so I want to look at this from two perspectives: um, you personally, but then also you professionally within your career leading the Chicago Leadership Lab. What was the impact of twenty twenty on you, and what I like to call the year of wokeness? Actually, you know, um, when I, I I'm not sure if you know this, so there's obviously there's so many that have so many things that happened in twenty twenty. We have you know, pandemic things shutting down, people mm -hmm. dying, people losing their jobs. But we also had George Floyd and we had a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, riots. So during this time, you know, there was, um, was air there was, there. I, I, I don't like to call it, uh, people have such a negative connotation when it comes to the word riot. And I think that, you know, when we understand, we need to unpack mm -hmm. what is happening in front of us. That's another conversation. But a lot of times what we see is during this time period, we saw a lot of allyship or people trying to learn more. Mm -hmm. So we saw, you know, it, it supposedly we saw an increase in, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. But when we looked at the data, what the data tells us, there's this um, New York Times article and it goes into like actually because of what happened in 2020, support for Black Lives Matter actually decreased yes. in white communities. Yes. So like mm -hmm. that was like really mm -hmm. important to understand is like, okay, people are putting on a performance and saying, yeah, we yeah. support Black Lives. I'm going to put my little button on and I'm going to say I support <laughs> Black Lives Matter at work, right? But actually that's not what's happening. 
actually, we are still seeing the the root cause of things still occurring over and over again. And I think that necessarily for us, it wasn't, we've always been invested in this work years and years and years before 2020. What we saw is a reaction which created a sense of urgency. That urgency has always been there. It's never gone away. And I think that 2020 created urgency for people. But now that, but they're like, oh, that was really important. Oh, we did it. Great. Post-racial America. But no, actually, we're not anywhere near there. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that that sense of urgency has left. Um, People got tired and they just let it go. So I would say that for us, it's it was this has always been something way before 2020 um, for for us moving forward. I don't know, Jackie, if you want to add to that, because that's hard for me to answer. Yeah, there's so much there. Like I think about <laughs> I'm so grateful that I'm not in the same place physically or mentally as I was in 2020. So right before the pandemic started, there's so much that happened, like, oh my gosh. Um, But right before the pandemic, I realized I was getting really sick. Like my hair was falling out. Like I was breaking out everywhere. Like it, my body was like out of whack. And it was because I was working too much. Just like what I was telling you before about not taking care of myself, investing so much in the community, not investing as much in my family. Um, So around January, I went to the doctor, got blood work and stuff. And basically what came back is like, you need to sleep, you need to eat. um, And like, if you just started with those things, like it would be better. So I started working out, sleeping, eating. Um, and I had to actually had to end up like cutting my hair of like 14 inches because like I said, it was like literally falling out. Yeah. So, um, wow. which, you know, then people always think you're kind of having like a, you know, a crisis, right? <laughs> crisis. <laughs> right, right, right. A crisis. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> but for me, it was a time to really be able to like, focus on my wellness in a way that I hadn't been able to before because I always had to be somewhere. I always had to drive somewhere. So um, that is what was helpful. But like to Caitlin's point about the riots and George Floyd and just like the bombardment in the media um, making a spectacle of our Mm. our death, right? Mm. And our murders was really difficult for me because I have two black boys. And I remember this is when I knew I wasn't okay. Um, like we were dancing to a song. I think it was a Beyonce song. Me and my boys were just dancing in the living room, having a good time. I literally stopped and like just started to cry. They're of course like looking at me crazy. Facts. But I'm yeah, but I'm like crying because I'm like, I'm sitting here dancing with my kids. And they could grow up in five years and be shot by a police officer. Um, and I'll be thinking back to this moment mm. then of, wow, I wish I could be dancing with my kids again. And so I remember like recognizing like, shit, I have PTSD. Like this is traumatic for me in a way that I, mm. I, you know, some of sometimes you're numb to it. It's like, oh, but like, no, I was having a hard time. And then Afterwards, I I started having a lot of anxiety about their safety. So if I was getting them out the car, I'm like holding them like so tight to my chest. Like, I don't want a car to hit them. Like it spiraled to like hyper vigilance. Um, Yeah. And I I needed I needed to go to therapy because it it spiraled into just like anxiety about a whole host of things. Um, And so thankfully, I got therapy. My therapist um, was amazing. But that also like helped me realize how important it is to have these conversations with other people 
um, especially Black people, not just white people. Racism dehumanizes everybody and Black people need Mm -hmm. to understand the ways they have internalized these messages, the trauma that they've had, but then also ways to disrupt that. So, yeah. That's that's wild as a mug. Like, that's wild. Like, yeah. (laughs) I remember over the pandemic and a little bit before the pandemic, for real, for real, I reconnected with some of my kids. I grew up in my neighborhood, you know, childhood friends. You know, they you know they real names. They don't go by their real names no more, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but you know, you know, you know, I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, I'm not gonna say their name, but what's going on, John John? What's going on, Maurice? And they're like, man, don't call me, man, don't call me that, man. It's smoke. It's midnight. Man, I'm Ryder, bro. It's Ryder. I'm like, come on, Maurice, what are you talking about? Right. Like, you used to pee in yourself in Miss Grace class. You don't remember that? So like you connected with them. And, you know, we having chicken wings, whatever. You know how black people do. And mumbo sauce, DC people. So we having some chicken wings. We chilling. We talking. And I was like, man, how you feel about all this Black Lives Matter stuff, man? And I remember they were just like, man, you know, gruff people from the street, from the streets for real, for real. They all sound like DMX. You know, they man, I don't know. I'm like, what you mean? He's like, man, people die every day, B. I'm like, oh, that's, that's callous. You're hard cold. You know, but at the same time, it's like, I remember that. Like, I remember growing up. And being around that, death was so present. It's like, man, people mm-hmm. die every day. Like, police kill you, beat you up. Mm-hmm. That's just a part of the everyday culture, everyday struggle. Um, and for you, but I guess I never, I never could see it from the perspective as someone who has to protect their life. Because I was always somebody that felt like I could get my life taken. So mm-hmm. it's like, you got to live your life with that pressure. Like, you got to think about your, if you, I guess if I was one of your black boys, it's like, you think about it from a totally different perspective. Like, I want to live for my mom. I want to grow up for her. You know, I want to make it to 18 and then eventually 21. And then once I make it at about 24, 25, I'm kind of safe. Cause I mean, I'm mad in the black community. That's mm-hmm. mad old, especially in certain communities. You make it to like 21, you are old here, which don't make sense for a lot of people. Cause in most communities, most cultures, you still young, you still learning, but in a black community, especially you've come from, you know, underserviced <laughs> or blighted communities, yeah. dog, you're like, you old as hell. You are, you somebody grandfather's like for real, for real. So to hear you had experience that really was kind of eye opening for me. Like I never even thought of it like that. Like your mom, cause my grandmother used to call me every day and give me updates on what's happening. They, who got choked out, who got beat up. And I'm like, mm. Why are you telling me this? Like, I could care less. Like, people get beat up, shot every day, get harassed every day. I'm always ever vigilant of that because I could be a victim. But then now, hearing your perspective, that kind of gave me some context. It made me feel guilty, man. Again, with your motherly talk, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I call my grandmother. Like, I'm sorry, Granty. I should have yes. took your words more, more to heart. <laughs> yes. And the, the work that you're doing in DI and thinking about 2020, I, I also can't help but think about the business side of it because DEI business was booming yeah. um, in 2020 and 2021. And Chris and I had some conversations around it because I will say personally, um, I felt a lot of ways about it. Um, I love the opportunity that it created for individuals who really wanted to lead this work um, with DEI. And just, just I'm going to hand this over to, to, to you, Caitlin. DEI, can you just share what those uh, initials stand for or the acronym stands for? It stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so this work, you had lots of corporations now hiring individuals within leadership capacities to really steward this work within our organizations. And I thought that that would be really great because it's necessary to be able to have someone with the cultural competency to be able to then create programming within an organization. I also have been in business a little bit of time and I understand when folks are just doing things because it is quote unquote mm-hmm. the right thing to do or the necessary thing to do for business. Formative 
<laughs> performative, which came, I think you alluded to earlier. And so mm-hmm. um, what did that of the business, how did that like impact your work? Because I had to imagine there was a flood of now DEI consultants and DEI specialists who may have not necessarily put in the work that you may have put in or, you know, had the connections that were able to take advantage of opportunities that you may have not put in, you you know, you may not have had. And I want to be careful not to say that there's a competition here, but there's a difference when, you know, hey, I've been doing this work, right? And, you know, you've been trying to fight to get folks to pay attention to this. And then a pandemic life happens. And now there's just a swarm of folks who are assuming this work. Mm-hmm. and are able to take advantage yeah. of opportunities. So can you talk about it from the business aspect and how that impacted your business? We definitely saw, like Caitlin spoke to it before, like the the hyper urgency about this, which I'll, the way that I can say it, it led to sloppiness. Um, yeah, it led to sloppiness because things are either thrown together or, you know, people feel like, let's hurry up and have this conversation with the staff about X, Y, and Z. Okay, what for what outcome? What do you want to happen? It's okay if you don't know everything that's going to be said, but why? Are you creating a space of healing? Are you creating a space of learning? Also, there are people who've already been talking about this for their entire life, and they might not want to talk about it right now, particularly in a space where there are people who are acting like this happened for the very first time. That will create a lot of frustration for some Mm -hmm. other people. And so when groups have not thought about this, then, of course, when you bring people together to have these conversations you know, oh, I didn't see how this could go wrong. Well, yes, because we felt like we had to hurry up and put something out, but we didn't stop to think, right? And Mm -hmm. if the people who are leading those spaces don't have the development in the way they have internalized racism and how it manifests in spaces, like I remember like at the school that Caitlin and I um, work at, they wanted us to be a part of those conversations a lot because we also do this work outside of there. And I was intentional about not being in a lot of those spaces, but then sometimes I still found myself assuming responsibilities. And I was like, wait a second, I'm falling into the old habits of like, let me clean up this mess. Or when something would go around, I'm like, well, I know how to fix it. Let me, you know, smooth this over. And I had another friend tell me another person of color, they stood up for me, um, Asian American, stood up for me in a meeting when I left and was like, and told the other white people who were there, like, you are doing this. You are actively like putting this back on Jackie when she said that she did not want to do this. Um, And you have also allowed her to take on these things instead of doing the work for yourselves um, and doing the research for yourself to be able to lead this space. So that happened across organizations. Um, Yeah. And and that's sloppiness is what, what I could say. And then it can actually hurt the progress that we make. Yeah, I think something that makes Jackie and I different when it comes to um, understanding DEI and consulting services is that a lot of organizations or businesses will be like, we need this because we want our our employees to get it and check, they're Mm -hmm. culturally competent. Mm -hmm. And then Jackie and I come in, we're like, "Mm -mm, this is not, you need these many workshops. You, This is a year long process. This is a two year process because they tell us what they want and it's not going to happen in one session. Right. It's going to happen <laughs> yeah. over a year, two years, three years. A lifetime. Right? It, exactly. It really is. And But that's what people expect that these services or, or this type of work is going to happen overnight that I'm going to come in and, and talk about racism. There, Everybody is going to walk out and be like, I'm not racist anymore. That's not even how mm-hmm. it works. 
So I, I think that's something that was very frustrating for us is when we talk to people, they want instant fixes. And this thing yeah. is not an instant fix. You can't fix this if you aren't, if you're, if people aren't willing to work on themselves. So I think that that was a huge thing for us too. It's like, and that's what keeps us grounded too. It's like, no, we understand that there's a hyper urgency around this, but we're not going to shy away from this is who we are and this is how it needs to be done. And if people want it done a very quick way, then we're not the people not, for yeah. you and you can have somebody else come in and t- they can take your money and check, but it, expect things to remain the same. Exactly. Chris, you want to jump in here? Yeah, man. I got another one. Go ahead. <laughs> I see I see it in your face. I'm ready. So uh, I've always alluded that I do work in a cultural space kind of as well. I never really talk about where I work because I don't want to, I say a lot of disparaging things on here <laughs> about the place that I work. And one of the things I wanted to share, because it's crazy, like y'all do the sort of work that we were trying to do at my job um, back in 20, uh, 2016, 2017. They identified Black Lives Matter because, you know, like I said, I work at an institution. It's a political, a political institution, but it's also a cultural institution, whatever. So they identified Black Lives Matter back when it was grassroots because they were trying to solicit funds from large mm-hmm. organizations looking to partner with people like the place that I work because it's, it's a one-to-one match in terms of, the, the partnership would have a direct payoff for my cultural institution, a political organization, and it would have a one-to-one payoff for Black Lives Matter because they'll be aligned with a very large powerhouse mm-hmm. bet that can bankroll them, basically, just can bankroll them to have active change and have a uh, infrastructure of organizers, et cetera, to really take this show on the road and really make active change for people of color everywhere. Not just black people, but people, if, cause if you partner with my organization, you can't use black, the word black people, you gotta use people of color. And that should let you know where I'm going with this. So we were trying to do this organizing online, social media, trying to get young men, young women of color to vote or whatever. And we couldn't use the word black. We couldn't use the word Latin. We couldn't use the word racism. We couldn't use the word police brutality. We couldn't use the ideas or images of people being prejudiced. We couldn't use any of that imagery, but we were proposed to affect change in a positive way. <laughs> like it came in space. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, so I'm, I'm much like your face. That was me. Caitlin, you was me on the campaign. I was like, how? You know, Kanye was how, Sway? How? You ain't got the answers. You ain't got that. So my, you know, my mentor, my now mentor at the time, he like the head of the campaign. He like, Chris, you got to relax, bro. I'm like, nah, man, I'm tired of this. You know, I had words for that. This man saying all this wild stuff and he supposed to be black, but he not getting it. Like, what's what's going on with him? So I'm real hot about it. So I wish I was around or at least y'all could have came to my job and did a work or something like that. So I could be like, see, I told y'all, I told y'all because we had this event at the Maritime Institute in Baltimore. I don't know if you ever heard of that, heard of that place. Maritime Institute. It's a, it's a, or it's a, you may have heard of it. It's a place where a lot of organizations go and do like these overnight uh, Okay studies and curriculum, like yeah. when they have a curriculum they want to get on people, they take you to Baltimore and you study okay. at the Maritime You ain't got nowhere to go. You ain't got nowhere to go. You ain't going <laughs> no, outside. That's not, that's not <laughs> it. That's not it. That's not it. You go, well, yes, because Baltimore is yes. unsafe. Yes. Much, but, <laughs> but because it's also, it's, it's, it's like you're in this place, you suppose to foster a sense of community because you all are around each other 24-7 while you're there. Mm-hmm. You stay at a hotel. There's no hotels like dorms and stuff on the campus and all this other stuff. So you can really do the work and get that yeah. hyper-focus. You know, if it's Dragon Ball Z, you're in a hyperbaric content. <laughs> so in that, you, you be trying to talk about all this other stuff about organizing communications because we were trying to overhaul our communications program for the 21st century, which is nuts because it's twenty at this time it's 2015. We're talking about the 21st century. Again, let you know where I work. It's crazy. Right. It's crazy as hell. So 
they bring in a, a racial diversity equity inclusion group similar to you all, but not as good. Because it's this woman, she's probably like 50, 60 years old, and she's trying to talk to us about how to unlearn racism and your implicit bias. And then I just began to ask her questions. And mm. then they, I got I got told to sit down and then my, right. my executive director took me outside. <laughs> and he's like, Chris, you gotta be quiet. And I was like, what you talking about? He's like, you gotta be quiet. I said, I'm the only black person. It's me and Tiffany. That's it. There's nobody else <laughs> black in here. And I'm asking all these questions. I'm like, yo, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Cause I did organizing and stuff too. Right. I'm like, man, what's going on? So what do y'all do in situations where you're with an organization and they want to do the work, but they actually, they just want to say they did it. Mm. So, and you got to leverage that, yo, we got to pay the bills versus like, we need, we want to do good work. How do y'all leverage mm. that sort of relationship? Because my job, we be offering a bag, bag. People, you be paid up. You be out. Yeah. You ain't no loans. You know what I'm saying? No loans. <laughs> the bag. <laughs> a day of work. The bag. So what? How yeah. It's a day of work, but it's a day of work. Yeah, it's a day of work. Yep. That might also be why we still have other jobs too. So that helps mm. too, because we have control. We don't take on you know clients that are not aligned with our vision of progress because it won't work i don't care and caitlin doesn't care about the money like we invest a lot of time and the time is not invested in the sessions those come easy to us we do spend a lot of time i, I really like the powerpoints to be a certain way but like <laughs> the concepts <laughs> the concepts you know we caitlin and i've been talking about these things for as long as we've known each other um what what takes the time is talking through things with people um, and helping them to reflect. And, and because that takes, I mean, honestly, it takes years for some people to get from one place to another um, mm-hmm. or the seed that you plant in one session, like that might unravel a whole lot of things for somebody and they've not, they're not ready to come back to it for a couple of months, you know? And so anyway, we'll we'll say no and that has happened there was a a a, a district that we were working with and they had a vision we gave a session it was supposed to be for a small group we gave the session for a small group and they're like oh my god do it for everybody okay we'll do it for everybody and they're like okay like what's next we tell them what's next and they it took a minute to get aligned on that and in the end like their vision for what it would take did not align and so here we go we're not doing it. We move on and we work with somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's called integrity, folks. Is listening. That's mm-hmm. integrity right there. You know what I'm saying? You really put the work over the work. Because <laughs> who has time? Like, who has time to do anything else? But this is our life. You don't want to be stressed out about helping make progress to people who don't want it. Like, hell no. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Your head could fall out. You got to start eating. You got to start exercising. You know what I'm saying? You start breaking all, all over the place. <laughs> All right, so jumping right back in. Um, so when we when we think about your work, I, I wanted to get to this earlier, but now is the right time to talk about the curriculum. And so just just share with us, you know, a little bit about your curriculum and why it's so u- unique and why people should experience this curriculum. Caitlin, can you talk about um, like African American Latinx studies? Kate, that is Caitlin's baby, and she knows it inside and out like nobody else. So yeah, yes. So um. Our school, specifically where this is taught, our school demographics are about 50% uh, Black students and 50% Latinx students. So it was important for us to create a class that were for both of them. And something that is often missed and that we see a lot within uh, white supremacy culture is that 
groups of people and, and specifically people of color are pitted against each other when actually there's a lot of shared history. Um, so this is something that really shines through our curriculum is that the hit that the history is shared and here's why. Um, so that's something we take them throughout na naturally the conception of America and um, from through the lens of black and brown people. So that's what African-American Latinx studies truly is, is understanding that true history, understanding how our experience shape our reality, understanding how we are socialized as human beings, as men, as women, as black individuals, as white individuals, as Latinx individuals. But I think the most important thing about our curriculum is sharing the story of resistance and how people yes. have fought against this yes. oppression and that this isn't something that, um, you know, it's like, oh, all these terrible things have happened, but people have been fighting against it since day one. And I think that's really important to, for kids to necessarily see that the favorite unit that our kids, that we do every year that our kids love is talking about the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton and understanding <laughs> that Fred Hampton was a 21 year old man in their city that made this change and understanding like that history is so empowering for them. And something else that really shines through in this class is understanding that everybody's path to resistance is different. Not mm. everybody is made to go out there and, you know, uh, and do a protest or do a march. Some people are educators like us. This is our path to resistance. You guys have a podcast. This is like your path to resistance, right? So <laughs> on, have, helping our kids understand what is your path to resistance and helping them unpack that is extremely important in our class because we don't want them to walk away um, with their heads down thinking like, woe is me. We want them to walk away feeling empowered and feeling proud of, of their identity and who they are and what their people in history have done and understanding those processes as well. Um, that's pretty much what African-American and Latinx studies is about. Love that. And um, as Caitlin was talking, it reminded me about our approach that we take when we work with teachers or other curriculum projects, because what we see a lot, especially when, you know, people want to make a, a curriculum culturally responsive. Oh, that means let's talk about all the horrible, sad things that have happened to marginalized populations. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's actually not what it is. And so you can have a culturally responsive curriculum that is not focused on oppression. Like you can start with what are the things your kids like and what mm -hmm. are the things your kids are interested in, what they're what they want to be and have curriculum that helps them explore those things. Because the thing about being a person of color is we're constantly reminded that we are a person of color and that mm -hmm. and oftentimes when we talk or when we read about people who look like us, it's always in opposition to whiteness or in relationship to whiteness. I have an identity that's completely separate from whiteness. When I get up in the morning, I'm not, oh, yes, I'm black. I'm like, oh, <laughs> let me like make some eggs. And when I eat my eggs, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm black eating these eggs. Like sometimes, honestly, like I do think about like, you know, these recipes were passed down from my black family. But like other times I'm just like, I'm eating eggs, right? And so our kids have, and we've we've done surveys with, with people as well. Like kids don't want to just hear about the sad things or ways that they're oppressed. Like they also want to learn about how to become a pilot. They also want to learn about... I don't know. I was going to say water systems, but I actually haven't met anyone who wants to learn about water systems, but there might be somebody. And if there that person be. wants to learn about water systems, then damn it, like that is what you need to help them do. So we help teachers understand that too. And then when it comes to adults, like I, I also think adults are under the, sometimes under the misconception that 
conversations about that help build your social cultural awareness or like your cultural competence also have to start with race. And that's just not true either. When we do values based leadership development and just helping somebody even understand like what do you value and why do you value that? That begins to help people unlock the same reflective muscles that they need for the other stuff. And so we don't have to just dig into like you're a racist and you're you're not. It's like, nope, it's a lot that can come before that to help you dig into the other stuff. And I just to build on what Jackie said, like, I don't think Jackie and I would be as effective as, you know, doing the work together and not just doing the work together, but actually, like she said, being best friends and and just being very close without understanding each other's values and how that plays a role in our lives and how, like, like Jackie said, like one of her values is family. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so when we're talking about capacity and doing things, I'm putting in my mind, like, damn, Jackie's about to go home to her two boys. I don't have kids yet. So I'm going to, you know, take this on and vice versa. There's things in my life that Jackie understands that I value. And she takes that when we're having these conversations. And that's what people need to understand. Like, this is why I value this, right? And this is my mm-hmm. top thing. And this is why I make X, Y, and Z a priority. And yes. I think that's really important because if we're going to talk about these deep things and understanding race, you have to understand who you are and what you bring to the table as well. Let's go. So this is the moment where I feel like some of our listeners may be snapping their fingers. Now, I'm not a proponent of the snap of the fingers. I'm a fan of a good old clap. I'm I'm a fan of a good old clap or a good old just say it. Like, that was great. I'm a vocal person. I'll just say it. But that's Fuego. I appreciate that. One of the things that really stuck out to me um, that I, that I want to talk about uh, are like tips for our listeners. And I'm going to take a little bit of a detour and I'm going to round it back. Uh, Chris will know where I'm going once I say this first word. Boondocks. So have either of you, Chris is shaking his head. Oh my God, look at him again. So have either of you watched The Boondocks? Yes, it's been a while, but yes. Very long time ago. So the the only point that I really, so Chris, <laughs> the points that I want to make is, I told Chris that I want to learn about some, you know, cultural phenomenons and I want to have, I want to know the, like the latest and the greatest of what's happening socially because I pretty much live under a rock and he said, why would you watch a TV show that's 15 years old? Now, as I'm watching this show, though, it's very pronounced how accurate and how it runs in yes. parallel, even to today. I knew yes. at the time in which it, I, I didn't know, but I can see at the time it, it was released how it was totally applicable to life. But it's mm-hmm. very much so applicable, which makes yeah. me sad. But it yeah. also helps me understand that these aren't just brand new ideas that were putting forth, especially in the year of wokeness in 2020. So where I'm going with this is there are two main characters. There's a little brother, Riley, and there's an older brother, Huey. Right. And, you know, when I first started talking about this show, Chris introduced it to me and said, most people think they're Huey. Huey is the one that is, quote unquote, woke. He understands a lot of the context and has a lot of the really deep, rich understanding that the two of you are really talking to here. Right. And then there's his brother, Riley, who's just, you know, he's he's in the shenanigans all the time. Right. And so when I think of that, what you shared was what I'm just going to call Jedi mind tricks. Like some of the things you do when you're working with folks who are very resistant to finding their path of resistance, right? Like mm-hmm. how do you really work with a person? Because not everybody's going to be Huey. Not everybody's going to be receptive to it and really want to do that work. Some people are going to fight it internally, even if they may feel something or may not feel it. And so thinking of our listeners here and those of us who are trying to do the work ourselves, but also are trying to help some of our loved ones do the work. Are there some tips that you can give them very easily as we start to head out of here that they can start to practice for themselves and also start to practice when they are out with their friends, family, and loved ones? 
Yeah, um, I'm thinking about actually Caitlin and I are doing a workshop on the this tool called the Ladder of Inference tomorrow. Um, and this tool is really helpful. It basically helps you identify assumptions that you might be making. And Caitlin and I use the Ladder of Inference in coaching conversations uh, with adults when we're helping them to unpack different beliefs they have, but you can also use it on yourself. And so one of the first things that you need to do, like, and Caitlin said it earlier, perception is reality. And we all know that our experiences impact how we perceive different things. And so a lot of times we see something and we take that at face value. This is what happened because this is what I saw. And so what we, where we start with people is like, what did you see? Or like, what happened? What makes you think that? If they say, well, this person was angry. Okay. What makes you think that? What makes you think that they're angry? Well, they did this or they did that. What else could be at play? Like, yes, this person raised their voice or yes, this person, you know, was moving their hands. But what else could have been at play? Maybe that person was feeling anxious. Maybe that person was feeling afraid. Right. And so even like being able to help people just think about what they saw and why they think what they saw is what it was can Mm. disrupt something in and of itself. Um, and, you know, by that point, you're like, OK, well, maybe this this could have also been a possibility. Right. Um, and at that point, people are open to the idea of like, huh, OK. There's something else that plays. So that that's one of the things that people can do. Yeah, just to build on like the ladder of inference, um, that's actually, you know, also something that we do within ourselves. Um, I know Jackie and I do it to each other um, yes. and <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and I, you know, I've done it with strangers, um, at the nail <laughs> shop. So like, uh, <laughs> I always with the smoke, yeah. Every, all, don't matter. Catch me anywhere. I'm with the smoke. What's up? Anybody can get it. <laughs> okay. But I, I say that to say like understanding within yourself, why do I have this thought? Why am yeah. I having this action? Why am I behaving like this? Like yeah. what in my past and what in my experience yeah. has allowed me to think, say, act this way, right? And I think that's really important to be able to truly unpack that and have the, the uh, really, like I said earlier, like just being honest with yourself. I think that the most important thing as far as like being reflective and being able to do this personal work is to keep, keep digging and understanding like why, why, like why? And I think that something like in coaching conversations, like mm-hmm. I've had conversations with Jackie and I swear for five minutes, she's nothing but saying why. Well, why? <laughs> why? 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 What happened? Why do you feel like that? Like, I'm like, it's like the kindergarten, Don't, right? Yes, it's just like, why yes. is the perfect question? It's only one word, but it's the perfect yes. question. Yes. And I'm like, stop <laughs> asking me why. I'm trying, I'm trying to tell you. It's like, well, why? You know what I'm saying? So she don't like, I'm saying it works, mm-hmm. but I, I think that, that that is a skill of so important is just being done to impact. But I, I would say doing it with others. I think personally in, in my life, it's always harder for me to have these conversations with family and friends, yeah. right? And uh, because normally if it's somebody that you don't really know, it's like, well, you got to gain their trust and you got to get yeah. them to see you as competent. Whereas mm-hmm. friends and family, hopefully, I hope they think I'm competent or <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I hope that they they trust me. Um, but I think that having these conversations, especially if um, it's deep in something about race, I think that, you know, having evidence and under and really knowing mm-hmm. what you're talking about and being able to, you know, use those questions. Well, why do you think that? Well, here's what actually mm-hmm. happened and and kind of laying the story out for them of, of the reality is helpful as well. Yep. So empathy is what's the, probably the key active word there to teach yes. people empathy and to reject and dispel apathy. Yeah. Yes. Like those are the 
that's the key phrase there, man. And that's something yes. that we have a lack of, especially here in America. Other cultures, you know, you travel the world, especially in more, you know, indigenous or uh, communal based cultures, man. Empathy is a present thing. Apathy is not as present as it is in America or urban settings. Yeah. And then yeah. also to think about like the commodification of blackness and urbanization. Like that's something that's really been, that's been rampant, especially mm-hmm. in this decade. Like dog, the more and more you look at it, people just being sexualized, commoditized, and then mm-hmm. basically cast aside. Um, but I guess I had one question, one more question, just to get it all out the way. So has you all's appearance ever been interference when you were trying to do what you all were doing? And is that the thing that made you all get the doctorates? So that people had to respect you. Because they see y'all. They see, hey, they see they see y'all. They be like, hey, man, what's going on? It's like, man, shut up, man. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. Stop looking at me and listen. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there had to be a thing that y'all ran into a lot. With kids or adults? Both. What are we talking about? I mean, <laughs> I I'm just saying. High schoolers and adults. I, I mean, I, I, with kids, kids, it's easy to shut them down. That That is extremely easy. That's a boundary you set. Like right. absolutely not. Never in a million years. Never ever ever hurt their feelings a little bit. Mm. Honestly, yeah. um, that's, a, that's a boundary you have to set. Yeah, Put them down, I mean, it down. is. It is. Look, you can't mess up my teaching license. We're not going there, right? Kids yeah. is easy. Um, with adults, I I think honestly there has because we've worked with a lot of older adults, and I think it's really because. Jackie and I are in our mid thirties, and I think it's because we do look so young. I'm um, mm. like. Not so young, but we do look younger. No, listen, um, let's listen. They drink their water. They take their vitamins. <laughs> Put it out there, man. They drink their water. They take their we vitamins, y'all. And we yeah. eat and, and we work it out. Let's go. Let's go. But I mean, I think that we, when we work with adults, we do the work to let them see beyond what we are physically. And I think both of us as women have had to deal with this our entire lives, right? This isn't, this isn't, this isn't the first time. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be the last time either. All right. And I think that, you know, just being women and having those skills and understanding, like if this person is reacting in a certain way, like what do we know what to do with that? And I think we constantly, like for me, that was not why I wanted to get my doctorate. Um, I've always wanted to get my doctorate. Uh, genuinely is because the things that I want to do with my life and my career, you need a doctorate for. Okay. Um, yeah. I want to be a, like a college professor. Like that's eventually like where I want to go one day. So that was like part of my drive, but also I, I genuinely like love to learn and yeah. I just wanted to learn more and be better at what I'm doing. So mm. that was part of the purpose too. Okay. Yeah. Like for me, getting my doctorate, it was part of that level of credibility, um, especially early on, which is why I also took like a five-year break in between getting my master's and getting my doctorate because I was like, that doesn't feel like a good enough reason for me to go Mm. through all of this pain because it's tough. School is tough and balancing and juggling all of it. Um, And and so, but I, I went back to my story and the history of my people is that we have always been educators. Black people were teaching people to read when it was illegal and they can get their foot cut off and all these and like literally die. Right. So I come from a history of people who have taught people to read. And so to go from that, to be able to have my own consulting company where I am writing curriculum that is helping people across the entire country and helping to change systems of education and literacy in the entire country. Like that is a story of my people. It's not just my story. It is a story of triumph for 
for my ancestors. So like that gives me so much strength. Um, and it's another part of why I did it. And and quite honestly, and this is where I like I'm going to flex a little bit because a lot of times we Go don't ahead. like when Caitlin and I open our mouths, people know that we know our shit. So mm-hmm. when people try to have, you know, counter arguments, which quite honestly does not really ever happen. People bring up questions, but Caitlin and I see that as developmental. If you're Mm -hmm. asking questions or you don't know something, we're educators. So our job is to help you explore that and get there. So it's not personal, right? And and we know our shit. So we talk and we help people talk through those things. And through that, they build, we build trust because they see that we're not judging them, right? And then we move on. Like, so it, it honestly hasn't been a huge issue. I love that. It's unlike Chris's experience uh, when he was going through his training, he wasn't told to go stand outside in the hallway and get chastised by his boss. It's like when you get reprimanded as, as like a school child, Chris, that's what yeah. I felt like that sounded like when she was like, you need to stop. <laughs> you I already knew when you started the story. I was like, they kicked you out. I know they did. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I heard a podcast. You heard a podcast. Y'all see how I talk. She was like this. She was a SpongeBob meme. Like, what? Who is that? Why keep asking these questions? Where did y'all find him? (laughs) Why is he old? He's a uh, uh, what's that called? A temp. He needs to get out of here. It's toxic. Um, yeah, this was really fun for me. I again, I've been waiting to have this happen, and I just love the energy that both of you brought to the table, and the knowledge, the wisdom that you shared, um, and just the the understanding um, that you bring to this work because it's it's. It's really important. And I want to say we're we're sort of at the forefront of the work and at and like the early end of this work. I think there's going to be like just decades of trying to get this right. And so, Caitlin, you even mentioned this. You're like, you want to get better at what you do. And pressure, but pressure. It's like, yeah, you got to, right? Because there's mm-hmm. going to be ample opportunities to do this. And because this is such a delicate topic, right, which you will and deal in all the time, you really have to be able to maximize all the opportunities that you have. So that's why I say pressure, no pressure, because you're used to this. Pressure makes diamonds, right? Like you're used to having to show up to talk about something, but also at the end of the day, you shared how quote unquote easy this is for you. And I say quote unquote to say that nothing's ever really easy, but this is second nature because of how much work you put into it. So just understanding the work that you do, you know, us being in Chicago and what I'm trying to do in Chicago, I've appreciated getting to know y'all. I'm excited to work with y'all in many capacities. And I just want to say thank you for blessing us on a podcast today with Beyond Hood and Evil. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, this was dope, man. Y'all, y'all know y'all stuff, man. I was really out here moving and shaking, moving and grooving. But I got one question, one more last question. Do y'all have okay. like any services that y'all offer outside of Chicago? Mm, there we go. Yeah, yeah, we certainly like anything that we offer in Chicago can also be done outside of Chicago. We haven't flown anywhere yet. I would say primarily because of the pandemic too. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. really safe until you know recently. But we do um, virtual. Uh, webinars and things as well. And I I also want to say, I know this comes without question, but this work makes Caitlin and I better. And as much as we do know so much, literally every single day, we become aware of something that we did not know or a piece of ourselves that we have not fully excavated yet. And so it is through the multiple conversations that we have, whether it's talking to you all or talking to, you know, the different people that we work with, we hear their perspectives and we can sharpen ours. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that. OK, so it's like y'all got like an online curriculum that you all give people to access to or something. We yeah, we can. So a lot of times we build it with 
the the people and um and if it's something for adults we are usually the ones to facilitate that because mm-hmm. you can't just take it and then someone else does it because it won't it won't work out like that and you can't just do a worksheet <laughs> right no, 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 or no, just no, watch no. a video and you're good no, no no but if it is it if it's for kids those are things that you know we've created um curriculum and then people have purchased that and then they are the ones to facilitate it for for students Okay, so this ain't like Avon. You can't just put you can't put somebody in a pink suit and send them on a the road. No, oh, man, we no, 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 no. Okay, no. Um, so is that a goal that you all have for the future for Chicago Leadership Lab? We've talked about growing, and we de- we have other people who are part of our team. Caitlin and I are primarily the people who um, facilitate the sessions. But when we have larger groups, like you know, we have another uh, a team of people that we call who have all been vetted. Um, okay, mm. yeah, and so. You know what? What's in store for Chicago Leadership Lab? We'll we'll see. I believe um, something my grandma used to say is that you know what is for you, a guy has for you is for you. So I, I believe that I am where I'm supposed to be, and when I'm not supposed to be there, I'm not there. And so um, as the opportunities come in front of us, like we know what are the ones that we should take, um, and what are the ones that we shouldn't. Okay. All right. All right. Well, it was lovely talking to you both. Where can people find you? Is there a website? Is there an Instagram? Where can people find you before we get you out of here? Yes. So you can find us at our website at www.chicagoleadershiplab.org. You can also email email us, Jackie Baker at chicagoleadershiplab.org or C. Miller at chicagoleadershiplab.org. But all that contact info is also on the website too. There we go. (laughs) Appreciate that. Jackie, Kayla, Chicago Leadership Lab, we appreciate you. Thank you Yeah, this is so fun. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Chris, appreciate you, baby. Appreciate you too, man.